Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John could be the Christ. John answered all of them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With these and many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. But when he rebuked Herod the Tetrarch regarding his brother's wife Herodias and all the evils he had done, Herod added this to them. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Hey God. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to, to keep them handy because we will be uh, digging into a couple of scriptures today and it would be good for you to be able to reference them. Today we are beginning a new series, which we are calling The Earthly Ministry of Jesus. And it takes us naturally out of the Advent season and into the season where we see the light of the kingdom of God breaking into, as the ministry of Jesus begins. Now today we begin at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in the book of Luke, and that is his baptism. Now as a pastor, I get a lot of requests for, to be a reference for people, and most of, mostly from people who are moving on from our church and going on to ministry in other places. And as a referee, they're asking me to speak to that person's uh, ministry to us and to that character of that person. And references are interesting things to give because uh, the type of questions that people ask you tell you a lot about them. Some people ask, good questions designed to get a well-rounded perspective of the person or candidate. Uh, they probe for weaknesses and they explore the depths and the breadths of the strengths of the candidate. Other people ask questions simply designed to confirm their own biases or impressions that they formed through just a couple of interviews. But what I find most fascinating is that these people no matter whether they're doing a good reference examination or a, uh, or a sort of cursory one, they assume that I'm reliable. They assume that I'm trustworthy, that I'm capable, that I'm a good judge of someone's ministry and character. At least they've had a few interviews with the person or candidate that they're considering. They don't even know me at all. Why should what I think of their ministry or who I think they are count for anything? Why is my testimony worth anything? Now, the Gospels 
are a testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. And throughout these accounts, we see how Jesus is perceived by lots and lots of different people. His mother and brothers, his disciples, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, lepers, the crippled, the sick, religious leaders, and civic leaders. Yet in this passage, we see probably the two most profound and important testimonies of who Jesus was. And it's why it's at the beginning of the gospel, in a sense. One from John the Baptist, commissioned by God as a prophet to testify to the coming of Jesus, and one by God the Father and God the Spirit. Now, these are references I think are worth having. So let's look at how Jesus is made out to be and how they characterize his ministries through these two accounts. We'll begin with John the Baptist. Let me set the scene before we get into our text. The history of Israel, of the Jewish people of Judah by the time we get to this, uh, has been one of uh, constant uh, rebuke by God, by neighbors who have invaded or who have taken them into exile. It began way back in Egypt. And then through the time of the judges and the early kings, we had the Philistines. And then there was the exiles and the invasions by the large superpowers throughout the ages, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. This is a people that are used to being in servitude, being oppressed, being in a captive state, not ruling themselves. And they understand it because historically they have been unfaithful. They have not been good. Uh, they have not been worshippers or obedient to the commandments and to the covenants that God has set up. And so we get John the Baptist walking around saying it's time to repent. The coming of the kingdom of God is near. The anointed Messiah is coming. And he uses words like calling them broods of vipers. And he talks about the coming wrath and the axe that's at the root of the tree that's about to cut them down and throw them into the fire. He is critical of the religious leaders and the civic leaders. We see that in his criticism of Herod here. And he's saying, judgment is coming. And their response is, this is good news. This is good news. I, I always find that startling after being called a brood of vipers, after having the axe at the root of the tree, after being told that they're going to get thrown in the fire. He says, judgment is coming. And of course, the good news is for them that if they repent, once again, if this Messiah finally comes, then the, the oppression of the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans will be gone and they will finally become what they believe they were created to be. And John describes this as this judgment as coming and that it's good news. And he's almost using a fire and brimstone strategy here. Repent. And the response is revival. John is raising up a large crowd. People are gathering around him. People are noticing John the Baptist. And the people are waiting expectantly. We see that where we jump into this passage in verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly. And of course, the question they have is, this odd, large, gruff man walking around, stirring up all this interest, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. That would make sense, wouldn't it? He's 
someone who seems powerful, both in terms of his ability to, to raise a response and just his size and stature and, and, and disposition and the way he's preaching. And they, of course, then receive John's answer in verses 15 on to 17. John says, I baptize you with water. And you see, what we're going to see here are three contrasts that John makes between himself and Jesus. He's going to say, I am not the Messiah. I am not the one you are waiting for. Let me tell you three reasons, three differences between him and me. And he says, uh, John answered them, I will baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in, uh, his winning fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, there are three things here. First of all, he is describing the Messiah as being more powerful and more worthy. And then this, this expression here, not, are not fit to untie the thong or the sandals that he wears. Uh, John was a rabbi and uh, Jesus was a rabbi, but these were not uh, the rabbis that had status or, or were, uh, had a, a large group of economic servants or sometimes called uh, slaves, that, that strange category of people. Uh, a richer, more well-known rabbi would have had people working for him who were in economic servitude and they were expected to do household chores and to look after them and, and uh, be in a position which really they had very few rights and a whole lot of expectations. But one of the expectations that the servant of a rabbi or any servant uh, for an, another Jewish person did not have was to untie the sandal. That was considered to be inappropriate even for a servant or an economic slave. And the reason was that as you came into the house, your sandals were covered in everything that had been on the street all of the excrement, all of the dust, all of the dirt. And in some cultures, you see this now. Putting your feet towards someone is seen as being offensive. The, the feet were, uh, are a dirty, unpleasant place. And not even a servant, not even the lowliest of the lowly, should have to untie the sandals of somebody else. And so here's John saying, I'm not even fit to untie sandals. You don't even understand this comparison. You think that I'm somebody, compared to Jesus, is more powerful and he is more worthy. And that's the first comparison that Jesus makes. And then he says, I baptize with water. But he is going to baptize, and let's read that, because I want you to see both pieces, because we often read over that. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire. Okay, we'll come back to that. Now, if you read... Matthew's gospel of this account, you see that John the Baptist, when he's asked by Jesus to baptize him, is like, whoa, me baptize you? That doesn't make any sense. And that's a good question. Why was Jesus baptized at all? And we have this uh, picture, of course, we understand that, and John the Baptist is sort of saying, I baptize you with water, and this is a sign that you're going to be baptized in a different way, that you're going to be washed clean by the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, we understand how that happens, and Jen made reference to it earlier, in the sense that with Jesus' death and resurrection, we are made clean. And we see then that 
For us, Jesus' death and resurrection is like a baptism. We are dunked and washed clean in that work of Jesus on the cross. But that is also, in a sense, a baptism of fire that Jesus himself went through. And the baptism of John is the sign that Jesus is going to go through that. And we see this, in fact, uh, later on in Luke in chapter 12, verses 49 to 50. Let me read that to you. Jesus is talking now and saying to his disciples, I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. I've come to bring judgment. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is completed. And of course, he's referring to the baptism of fire that he is going to experience on the cross. The baptism of judgment. How do we know it's judgment? We'll look at what John the Baptist says uh, in the rest of the passage. He talks about fire, and then he moves directly on to say, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, explanation, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquestionable fire. Now, this is, of course, a metaphor to throwing up the grain to get the chaff, the rubbish out, and to let the solid, edible, useful things fall down, those which have value. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to winnow that out. John the Baptist is describing Jesus as a judge. So John is making the distinction here, firstly, that he's more powerful, that Jesus is more powerful and more worthy. Secondly, that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And thirdly, that whilst John is a prophet, who comes and says, repent, he's prosecuting, according to God's law. Uh, John is a prosecutor. Jesus is, in fact, the judge. So we have these three distinctions. More powerful and more worthy, baptizes with spirit and with fire as opposed to water, and is the judge, not just the prosecutor. Big statements that John is making here about Jesus. And how do we respond to that? How should we respond to this claim of John the Baptist about Jesus, this testimony of John the Baptist? We see in verses 18 to 19, one response. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news, that good news of repentance, that good news of escape from judgment. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodotus, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to them all. He locked John off in prison, and we know he later beheaded him. So two takeaways from this. We can respond like the common people and repent, or we can respond like Herod, and we can try to kill the messenger. What does it mean to be repentant? Well, if you look at the early passages of this, there's examples where the people actually, in the pre-passage to this, in the beginning of the chapter, where the people actually asked John the Baptist that themselves. A tax collector says, well, what does it mean for me to repent? And he says, you need to do what you've been called to do, be a tax collector, but do it with the character and righteousness of God. And then a soldier asks, well, what does it mean for me to repent? And he says, well, you've got to do it without being an extortionist, without manipulating and using your power. So, in a sense, what he's saying is, 
Go about doing the things you are called to do. Go about being part of the culture that you're in, but do it in ways that bring about the kingdom of God, which reflect God's character in what you're doing rather than building your own kingdom. And I find that this is really the hardest thing to read and hear in this whole passage for me because I know that I have a divided heart. I spend half my time building my own kingdom. I have half my time like the tax collector investing with the things that God has given me, building the things that I want that, that really are going to pass away and, and not being able to focus and, and, and respond to his call to do things faithfully the way he wants me to do them in every area of my life. So we have this idea of not trying to have two kingdoms and maintain them both, not having a divided kingdom, but being focused on living out the kingdom of God in the sphere that God has called us to. And the other thing, the other takeaway here is to be prepared to be killed. Now, John the Baptist was killed, as we see, and I don't mean that in the sense we literally should expect to be killed, although that definitely happens to some people, and not just John the Baptist. Many saints have been killed because of their faith. But we've got to be prepared to die a death to that other kingdom, to those other things that get in the way of us being faithful. So two takeaways, be people of repentance, be prepared to be killed, or at least prepared to die to those things which distract us from the kingdom of God. Now, the second reference here about who Jesus was comes from uh, God, uh, God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. And this is the first time, and we see this in verses 20 to 22, first time we see the Trinity in all its majesty. Let me read that to you. As he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit depended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So we see that God the Son is visibly anointed with God the Holy Spirit and God the Son is visibly acknowledged by God the Father. Let's look at each of those in turn. This coming down on the dove as the Holy Spirit was a very visible, very visible thing. It wasn't just Jesus that sort of imagined or experienced this in some ethereal concept. We know this because the disciple John actually talked to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist told him that he saw the dove coming down. If we look in uh, the uh, Gospel of John, verses 1 and verses 32, and this is John the disciple talking about John the Baptist. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except for the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So that was a visible, very, very visible sign of the Holy Spirit coming down and anointing uh, Jesus. But it came as a dove. Now, we just read a minute ago that, the whole, that Jesus' baptism was going to be one of spirit and fire. The question should be two questions, really. Why a dove and why not fire? So remember back to Noah. And the dove is a symbol of peace. 
Noah and the ark, they sent the, the dove out and it comes back and, it, and finally it has an olive branch in it and we've got this sign of a new beginning. It talks, it's, it's, it's a picture of a restoration of creation. It has all the hope of the first creation that things are going to go uh, well, but of course they don't. But that dove is the sign of that restoration, of that a holistic shalom or peace. Uh, and it's a sign that there's a new beginning and a new start. The, the fire is a sign of judgment and the judgment that God had predicted. And God had been preaching about the judgment of God coming. Uh, and that certainly happens. It happens to Jesus at the end of Jesus's ministry. And it happens to us all as a creation at the second coming. But this baptism ushers in the beginning of Jesus's ministry of reconciliation, of restoration, of new beginning, the coming of the kingdom of God, the new covenant. Judgment is held off. And I think it's reasonable to ask why. Why did this judgment that in the Old Testament was predicted to come at the same time as repentance and everything was going to be made right, all in one hit? Why the delay? Why the delay? Why do we have this breaking in of the kingdom of God at this baptism and the judgment pushed out so far? First at the cross on Jesus where his own baptism of fire happens and then of creation later uh, at the uh, second coming. And the answer to that question is, is really given to us uh, in uh, 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. And let me uh, grab that for you. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish that everyone to come to repentance. The breaking into the kingdom, there aren't enough people in the kingdom yet. It's not broad enough, it's not big enough, it's not diverse enough. Right now it's a bunch of Jews in Palestine. Later it's going to include every tongue, every nation is gonna bow down. We're gonna to get to that picture of Revelation. It is God's mercy and God's grace that is holding off the coming of the kingdom. So. In that sense, judgment is held off because the view that the people of Israel, the people, the people there who are hearing John the Baptist preach, and perhaps John the Baptist himself, the enormity and the breadth of this restoration wasn't understood. It was bigger than just the restoration of Israel. And we see this again, by the way, this holding off of judgment so that the coming of the kingdom can break in and the restoration and the reconciliation is much deeper and much more profound and much more personal, much more complete when we look at Jesus' uh, first sermon uh, from Luke chapter 4 later on in this series. Now, the second way that Jesus is acknowledged in this text is he is visibly acknowledged by God the Father. And God is acknowledged God acknowledges Jesus with the words containing two phrases, and they're both really important. You are my son, whom I love, 
with you I am well pleased. Now, both of those are important. Now, it's tempting to think this is this great completion of the Trinitarian picture, but it is not. The term here, son, happens all through the Old Testament. Israel is called Jesus's, uh, is called God's son. David as a king and Solomon as a king and all the kings as representative of God's people are called sons. We are known as the sons and daughters. God's people are called his sons and daughters. Uh, there are places, and even in this passage, where John has held up Jesus as being judge, which imply that he is most definitely God. But this is not one of those passages. So what we're seeing here is the beginning of a setup. You are my son whom I love. Now that applies to Israel. That applies to David and David when David's people when he was king. It applies to Solomon and the kingdom when Solomon was king. It applied to all the kingdoms. It applies to us, his church now. You are my sons and daughters and I love you. And it's a setup for a substitute, you see, because Israel, us, the spirit is a dove. This son has another characteristic. With you I am well pleased because you have been and you will be obedient. God the Father brings it home with this second endorsement. With you, I'm well pleased. I certainly can't say that about Israel or the king or us. Loved, yes, but pleased at our obedience, no. Now these two phrases, you are my son whom I love, come from Psalm 2 which is a messianic psalm, and it's a beautiful psalm if you read it. You are my son. It applies to both David and then to the line of David, which Jesus is in. And we know that because the next passage after this one is a genealogy where Luke goes, starting with Jesus, traces it back firstly to David, then to Abraham, all the way back to Adam and says, son of, son of, son of, gets to Adam and says, son of God. So we're seeing here that David, Abraham, sorry, Abraham, Adam, Abraham, David, and Jesus are all, uh, Jesus, therefore, is a son of God by a descendant in this sense. And he is a new king who is a representative of a new people, but he is completely obedient. And we see this from that second part, because with you I am well pleased, which I hope you recognize because it was in our Advent series. It comes from Isaiah 41, uh, 42, sorry. And let me read that to you. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And then we basically get the baptism narrative again. Let me read the next three verses. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Here is the Holy Spirit coming as a dove. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. God the Father is declaring Jesus is king, but not just king, he is servant king obedient king, son worthy of substitution for us on the cross. Servant king son, not just worthy, but willing to be a substitute for us on the cross. The first reference that we get in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus 
comes from John the Baptist and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Imagine if your CV had these names under the reference section. It certainly solves the problem of credibility for the referee. The greatest prophet, the creator, sustainer, and the judge of all creation. Not bad references indeed. And not only that, they give Jesus strong endorsement. He is powerful. He is worthy. He is judge. He is king. He is servant. He is restorer. He is redeemer. He is reconciler. In him, we are well pleased. So what's our takeaway? It would be a little bit easy here to get discouraged. This is the standard. I am in big trouble. I'm glad Jesus made the cut. I'm glad you love me, God, and I'm glad that I'm your son and daughter, but how are we going to address the in him I am well pleased problem? I'm the love child who is not obedient. When it comes to a reference to be included in the kingdom of God, I will be described as one of the brood of vipers, good to be cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is at my root. The good news is Jesus' baptism ushers in a reconciliation where Jesus himself goes to the Father to be the reference for me. Imagine that. Jesus, my reference. And not just in the sense that he intercedes for me. He is literally my reference. God looks at him and says uh, to me, not just you are my son or daughter who I love, but you are my sort of son or daughter that I love, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' record is substituted for mine. I get to use Jesus as my resume. And it even gets better than that. Not only do I get to use Jesus as my resume, not only do I get to look the part before the judge, Jesus is going to clean up the messes that I have made and that I will make. Before God, I have and you have the perfect resume. And I am and you are unable to permanently mess things up. Wow. This leaves me feeling thankful and wanting to be obedient. God is good. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, your burden is light because you bore it. Our burden is light because you bore it. Your burden was heavy. It was hard. It was the fire of judgment, the baptism of the cross. Our burden is light. You have freed us. We are your sons and daughters, and we stand before you, pleasing you because of the work of Christ on the cross. Help us not to strive to meet some standard. Help us not to burden ourselves by moving back into that mindset that somehow we have to meet some standard that is impossible to meet. Help us to be obedient because 
we are delighted in by you because we are thankful, because we are grateful, because that's how we, only way we can express our thanks to you. Help us to be thankful, worshipful people who love obedience like you love obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.